From the Bill Moyers Archive, Faith and Reason, filmed at World Pen Voices Festival in 2006. Now adapted for audio. Buddha taught that without exception, every living being has the potential to awaken. Pema Chodron talks about life as a spiritual journey and her passion to end suffering. That's in this episode of Faith and Reason. Welcome, I'm Bill Moyers. We've seen in this series how faith has a place in keeping an open heart and reason a means of keeping an open mind. Pema Chodron takes us beyond faith and reason. Her answer to the frenzy of modern life is a calm mind and a warm heart the journey and discipline of 30 years as a Buddhist nun. Buddhism is not so much a religion as it is a way of life. It marks no divide between the sacred and the secular. And when you get serious about it, Buddhism touches everyday experience. That's what Pema Chodron teaches and writes. In recent years, Buddhism has found a welcome in America, thanks to books by some of its leading teachers who point the way to a practice based on direct experience rather than belief. Pema Chodron is one of those teachers. Here she is at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York, where people come to learn about Buddhism. The thing is, what we find if we're not used to sitting quietly with ourselves, not used to meditation, not used to having any inner solitude in our lives, we find that we're very threatened by nothing happening. Her books sell widely, with titles such as When Things Fall Apart, The Places That Scare You, and No Time to Lose. Her readers not only discover modern insights into ancient practices, they also come to see how this housewife and mother became what the Buddhists call a bodhisattva warrior. What is a bodhisattva warrior? Well, it's someone who takes a vow, actually, which I have done and many Buddhists do, that my main passion in life is to awaken myself, and I believe that everybody could do that, and I will devote my life to the degree that I can awaken. To that degree, I will devote my life to trying to inspire other people to believe that they could, and obviously behind all this is the de-escalation of violence and aggression and the escalation of loving-kindness and compassion and those kinds of feelings. So the path is about how the individual works with their own mind and how that affects the family, the society, the nation, the world. After 30 years... But there isn't like daydreaming that then there's not going to be any more mean people in the world, there's not going to be any more prejudice in the world, and it's not just experience based on reading the books and listening to the teachers, there's also a practice, which is the meditation practice. And then you just say, everyone needs some solitude in their life. And this solitude could be that you take time to sit with yourself in meditation 15 minutes a day or longer, or you find time out in the busyness of the whole thing. I've had many times when I meditate and it seems like my mind is just going up hundred miles an hour and yet when I stand up and walk into life there's more room in my mind I guess that's how I would describe it more room in your mind yeah As someone once said to me the best spiritual instruction is when you wake up in the morning and say I wonder what's gonna happen today and then carry that kind of curiosity through your life 
That's what intrigues me about you Buddhists, is you go for long periods of time deep into realms the rest of us are hardly aware of. What, what was the longest period you experienced silence? I guess a year. A year. What happens during that period? The first thing that happens is you climb the walls. <laughs> this isn't personal with me. I, it doesn't happen anymore, but because the detox is so intense, I remember thinking like someone coming to the door to just drop off a note or something, and I felt like I was in Kansas and Oz was outside the door. <laughs> you know, it's like sensory deprivation. But gradually what begins to happen is that you sink so deeply into what life has been distracting you from. Because it's a definition of no distractions. That's the purpose of the retreat, no distractions. You quickly learn that distractions are not just phone calls and emails and outer phenomena. Our own mind and our longings and our cravings and our fantasies and everything are also major distractions. And as time goes on and you're feeding it less because no talking, you begin to sink deeper into the undistracted state. And then you begin to realize that life is always pulling you away from being fully present. Fully present? What is right. that? It is basically a wide awake state where your sense perceptions are wide open in the tradition I follow. And if you could imagine seeing and hearing, tasting and smelling and so forth without any filter between you and your experience, it's as if suddenly all of your sense perceptions had been narrow little slits and now they're wide open like they have no outer dimension. But let me say this, if the result of that life was that I had to stay in that seclusion, I wouldn't think it had measured up to a hill of beans. So for me, I always go out and in, in and out of this kind of situation, because I want to go deeper, but the only reason I want to go deeper is to be there for other people in increasingly difficult situations. It's kind of based on deeply longing to be free of suffering, and then it extends to wanting the other people to be free of suffering and the suffering that you see escalated in the world. And one of the principal teachings of the Buddha was that he said, I teach only two things, suffering and the end of suffering. So this conviction that sentient beings could be free of suffering, they could end their suffering, that doesn't mean physical pain. It doesn't mean outer circumstances being unpleasant. It means what you do with the things that happen. The Buddha talked about the truth of suffering. Yeah. What do you think he meant by suffering? And what do you Buddhists mean by suffering? Suffering? Yes. Well, that's a complex question, but it doesn't mean that we could be free of that if fire burns you, it won't hurt. If you get cut, it won't hurt. It also doesn't mean that if someone you love very deeply dies, you won't feel sadness. And it doesn't mean that bad things won't happen to you anymore. It doesn't mean that you won't have your personal tragedies and catastrophes and crises. Do you know what I'm saying? I do know that. So that it's all about the end of suffering it has to do with how you relate with pain. Let's distinguish, just for semantics, the difference between, let's call pain the unavoidable, and let's call suffering what could lessen and dissolve in our lives. 
So if there was a sort of a basic phrase, you could say that it isn't the things that happen to us in our lives that cause us to suffer, it's how we relate to the things that happen to us that causes us to suffer. One of the things that this 8th century Indian Buddhist master Shantideva, one of the things he says about this whole thing is work with little grievances such as the middle seat instead of the aisle seat or your favorite restaurant being closed or not being able to get into the movie or whatever it is, you know. He says, there's nothing that does not grow easier through familiarity. Putting up with little cares, I'll train myself to work with great adversity. So in other words, the premise there is that if you work with feeling hot and feeling cold, you work with mosquito bites and middle seats, and at that level, notice that you're hooked and work with not escalating it. You're hooked. Yeah, that I'm hooked. Hooked is an interesting quality to me. What do you mean by it? I mean, not only has something evoked a response in me, but it's going to be difficult for me to let go. Anger is like that for sure. Prejudice is like that. Critical mindedness is like that. You don't want to let go. There's something delicious about finding fault with something. And that can be including finding fault with oneself, you know. So that's what I mean by hooked. You're sort of, because of the image of the fish and the hook, and it has this juicy worm on it, and you know the consequences aren't going to be good, but you cannot resist. It's addiction. And one of the main things we're addicted to is escalating aggression. So you escalate the anger. So I escalate the anger. My teacher, Zigar Kanchalrimpeche, he calls it pouring kerosene on the fire, you know, in an attempt to put it out, you pour kerosene on the fire. Mm, I like that. I like the idea of being cooked. It's a new metaphor for me. And, the, the word in Tibetan is shempa, and I've been teaching a lot about it lately because when I heard this teaching from one of my main teachers there, Kanchal Rinpoche, I thought this is fabulous because he says it isn't the words themselves that you're saying to yourself. It isn't the emotions. It's this charge behind them that's the shempa. It's this hooked quality, this difficult to let go. In my case, I read a book by Chogam Trumper Rinpoche, and it really resonated, you know? What resonated? Well, I'd have to go back a little bit further. I was at a point in my life where, I think it was a low point of my life, evolved around a marriage breaking up, but... Uh, Your husband came home one day and said he was having an affair. That's right. That's he wanted it a divorce, right? That's right. That's exactly What did you do? The first thing that happened, and I had a sort of an epiphany, <laughs> or I say in the book, I think like a genuine spiritual experience, which happens to people at a time of shock, like car accidents and things, which was time stood still. There was a completely timeless moment where all I saw was the light and heard the sounds, and it was like the eternal moment, you know. And then the mind came back, and I picked up a stone and threw it. <laughs> you know, the mind came back and started, you know, this is what I'd say about fanning the whole thing, you know. Mm. But in any case, it took me a good year not to be over it. I wasn't over it, I'd say, for about five years, but a good year for the pieces to sort of start coming back together. And 
in that time, I looked everywhere. Different therapies, all the different spiritual disciplines. I live in an ashram. I did weekend intensives in Scientology, which I didn't last very long in that. And you went down the cafeteria of opportunities. Yeah, well, <laughs> I was suffering. And to say what I was saying before, it was like there was a pain that was maybe unavoidable, but then I was causing myself to suffer by struggling, 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 and what I was saying and so forth. But on the other hand, it was pretty absolute. I don't think there was any way to not suffer because the rug had been pulled out so completely. The pain was so great. And into that process, sort of near the end of the year, I happened to see this article called Working with Negativity, which was a chapter out of a book, but it was in a magazine. And I read it, and the first line is something like, there is nothing wrong with negativity. Because what I was feeling was fear, rage, and tremendous confusion about my rage and my hatred and kind of a deep, profound, unshakable groundlessness. And nothing could fill it, you know. People would take me to the movies, they'd take me to nice dinners, they'd do all these things, and nothing could get the pieces back together. And that was the first thing I had read that just spoke right to what was happening because I was thinking to myself all this time from day one when he told me, from day one I thought there's something very profound in what is happening here. There is something very profound because all I see now as I look out of my eyes at the world, I see that a lot of us are just running around in circles pretending that there's ground where there actually isn't any ground. And that somehow, if we could learn to not be afraid of groundlessness, not be afraid of insecurity and uncertainty, it would be calling on an inner strength that would allow us to be open and free and loving and compassionate in any situation. But as long as we keep trying to scramble to get ground under our feet and avoid this uneasy feeling of groundlessness and insecurity and uncertainty and ambiguity or paradox, any of that, then the wars will continue, the racial prejudice will continue, the hatred against people of a different, you don't agree with their sexual preferences, you don't agree with their religion, you don't agree with their skin color, you don't agree with their whatever, you know, their politics. It will always continue because you can't avoid being triggered what triggers you can get less and less in your life, but if you're trying to avoid being triggered, I read something recently where someone said, that's like becoming a celibate nun, like me, or monk, and then trying to get rid of all the sexually attractive people in the world <laughs> in order to keep your vows. You know, it just doesn't work. You have to work on your side of it, right? Help me to understand this meaning of groundlessness. What is right. that? Well, what is groundlessness? Well, you experience it all the time. And I don't know about you personally, but generally speaking, people react against it. We experience it as unpleasant when it's insecurity. You know, you feel insecure. That, that's a groundless feeling. Embarrassed, off-center, you know. I'm not saying that it's entirely a bad thing, because ways that we experience groundlessness as a positive thing would be like awe, wonder, great beauty that just stops our mind. And so, as I say, sometimes it's pleasant. 
But my curiosity has been more around when it's unpleasant. And no. what was the step from that trauma in your life to taking up the training of becoming a nun? <laughs> well, it didn't take very long, curiously enough, because believe me, it's the last thing. I grew up Catholic, and the last thing I, not that I had a negative experience with nuns, but I never dreamt of being a nun. You know, it was the last thing I ever dreamt. But here I became a nun. So the first step was reading that article, and then I, I found a teacher. I wasn't looking for a teacher, but I met one. And somehow, within two years, I became a nun. I mean, it's very, very strange. In my life, when I've had certain thoughts, I say, this is a forward thought, and I have to follow it. It just happens every so often. And for some reason, taking the vows represented a forward thought. And when I look back, it was premature. My children were young teenagers. And it would have been better to have waited until they were older. So, Did you ever feel guilt over that? Oh, yes, 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 yes. But in terms of having done it, I think the timing could have been better, but there is no other decision for me in life. That was the decision, you know. I always feel people are very fortunate, like you must feel this too, that somehow you find your niche or something where you always are somewhat on fire with a positive inspiration for, not even for your cause or something, but you found something in your life that gives it deep meaning and that doesn't run out. You're listening to author and Buddhist nun Pema Chodron and Bill Moyer's 2006 Faith and Reason Conversation. I understand better now what you write somewhere when you say that you think most spiritual experiences begin with suffering. They begin with groundlessness. They begin when the rug has been pulled oh, out. Oh, they do. They do. And I would say as a teacher of meditation and Buddhist teachings and talking to many other, you know, much more accomplished teachers than myself, one of the things that people say is that Students can be very attracted to the ideas and very enthusiastic about it intellectually and conceptually. But it's very superficial. It's not changing them at the core of their being or shaking anything up in terms of how they perceive reality, the limited kind of narrow way in which we perceive reality. It's not shaking it up at all. Mm-hmm. But when real hardship enters their lives, something that they can't just shake off, like great loss or pain or anything of this nature, where you can't just shake it off, you can't just smile and make it okay, the rug has been pulled, it is groundless. Then people start asking and seeking and have profound wish to try out this whole path. There's a line somewhere, someone says, I'm only paraphrasing it, that when an old culture is dying, yes. the new culture will be formed by men and women who are not afraid of insecurity. Right. I just loved that when I read it, you know. It will be formed by people who are not afraid of insecurity. Is that what it said? To, afraid to be insecure. Afraid to be so insecure. What do you think that, what do you take that to mean? Well, just what I've been saying, you know, and this was the article of Trumpa Rinpoche's why it was like a light bulb going off. Everything else seemed to be saying, look towards the good. Chant until you're in an ecstatic state, you know. 
the underlying assumption was there was something wrong and you wanted to avoid this groundless state or this unformed state or this state in which you felt uneasy and queasy. <laughs> and Truman Roche is saying, not at all. It's like the matrix of creative potential, the matrix of the spiritual life. If we could rest there, which I suppose would be the description of enlightenment or the mystic, you know, rests in that place and is completely happy. That's why they always say with someone who's very, very awake, just to use a term for enlightenment, the walls could start crumbling in and they wouldn't like freak out or something. Anything could happen and they're kind of ready for anything to happen. Do you see what I'm saying? Is that what you mean by the term the awakened heart? Yeah, I suppose. Awakened heart, awakened mind. Enlightenment, the Buddhists talk of. Yeah, yeah. And you see, this is one of the things that drew me to Buddhism because the Buddha taught that without exception, every living being has the potential to awaken, to wake up. That's intriguing to me because the knock on Buddhism is that, well, all of this concentration on yourself feeds your personal narcissism. Oh, yeah, no. I mean, it can. I mean, let's just say, just because you call yourself a Buddhist, you're just as hookable as anybody else. And <laughs> Buddhists can become as much fundamentalists as anybody else, you know. As much fundamentalist? Sure. Like, you mean that rigid mind yes, that, that we yes, associate yes. with? Now, the whole teaching, and usually what attracts people is it teaches otherwise. But let's just say, I'm a Buddhist, and I've been doing this for over 30 years, after all. But when someone hurts my feelings and puts the knife in and I actually think that they're purposely slandering me or gossiping about me or saying a mean word or I just don't come out looking so good, is my first impulse to love them? No. <laughs> my first thing is I get hooked. And if it wasn't for the way I'm sort of thrilled by the challenge of that, I would just bite the hook like anyone else. And most Buddhists, it doesn't matter. We still bite the hook. We still get towed under. And we can still, I say, clobber people with our peace signs, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so it really doesn't matter what religion we are. We can be a fundamentalist or a nonviolent, non-aggressive propagator of love in the world and fellowship of humanity. And Do you see what I'm saying? I do. I like this notion that we all are capable of being fundamentalist right. because we like to be angry at other people's wrongness. You know? yeah, yeah, we yeah. all get indignant so, at so everybody else. So this is the part where I get really intrigued is I feel so passionate about wanting to teach and live, personally live by this. And the main thing is free from fixed mind, free from closed mind, free from bigoted mind or fundamentalist mind. And it all starts with the Shempa. It all starts with getting hooked. Do you see what I'm saying? So that's where the work has to be done. And no one can be naive and say, I'm Shempa free. You know, that might be a description of enlightenment. Or maybe a description of enlightenment is Shempa's no big problem. When it happens, it's just another blurp on the radar screen, you know, but it doesn't set off the chain reaction. So we're all... Chain reaction? Mm-hmm. What do you mean, chain reaction? Well, it's like a tightening in the stomach or tightening of the jaw. You can see it in other people when you're talking to them. You can see that they've just been hooked. Their eyes kind of glaze over or whatever. And if it just stayed there, it wouldn't be a problem. But then you just 
think about it and think about it and think about it, and it's like a chain reaction. So let's say that the shempa or the charge or the hook quality is very subtle, and then the charge gets stronger and stronger and stronger until you're blind and you're able to actually harm another human being or start a hate campaign or... You yeah, I see. I, you can be upset. I so it's a chain reaction. And you can actually, if you come to your senses anywhere in the chain reaction, you can interrupt it. But it gets harder and harder because you become more on automatic pilot. And it's like an undertow. It's very seductive. Was it Shadi Deva who said, we who like senseless children... Yeah. Shrink from suffering but love its causes. Yeah. Shrink yeah. from suffering but love its causes. How do you interpret that? Well, just recently I was with a group of people and I quoted that and I asked them, without any teaching at all, to tell me what they thought it meant. And they'll just line ups at the microphone because people, you know, they talked about everything from being alcoholic, shrink from suffering, don't like the suffering, but to mask the suffering I drink again and then I have more suffering. What Shantideva is really getting at is, generally speaking, nobody wants to suffer. But our means of going about getting happy are not in sync with our desire to not suffer. That's a basic Buddhist teaching, is that sentient beings, none of them want to suffer, but their way of going about getting happy escalates the suffering. So yelling when you're angry would be an example. And I tell this story like last year I knew that if I kept working on a project I was working on, I could feel my physical health starting to deteriorate. But the adrenaline for wanting to keep writing, I was writing an article and it was taking a long time. And the adrenaline to want to keep working was driving me beyond what was sensible in terms of long hours and so forth. And I could feel that it was making me sick. I have somewhat fragile health. And so I stopped and I said to myself, I got up in the morning and I had said to myself before, I'm not going to start on this project till 1.30 in the afternoon. I'm going to spend the morning meditating, walking, calming kind of things. But I got up in the morning and I found myself at the desk with the pen, first thing, you know. So I sat there and I said, why are you doing this? So I'm having a dialogue with myself. I'm doing this because I equate it with satisfaction. I'll finish this paper. And that makes me feel good to think that it will be finished. So then I said to myself, and if you start writing now, will you feel better? No, I won't because my health is starting to go. So why are you doing it? So I just sat there with this feeling like someone is going to have to come up bodily and gag me and put a mask on me and drag me out of the house for me not to just start, despite the fact that I knew it wasn't good. And then I came down to just because I want to. You know, I already knew I was doing it for this imagined satisfaction that I knew I wouldn't get. You see, so we're kind of stuck in that place. Did my colleagues get to you to tell you how to get to me? How to do a public diagnosis of me? I mean, <laughs> did they come to you and say, you can get him if you talk about work? <laughs> no, I'm yeah, the same way. Of course. Yeah. I'm fascinated by that seductive pull, that urge to keep doing, as the Buddha would say, where your desire for satisfaction and happiness are not in sync with the methods you go about using. And then you could say the consequences, you know, of war and 
prejudice and so forth, they all come from that moment of the urge to do the same thing you've already done. Do you look to the Buddha with the same kind of reverence that many Christians look to Jesus, while Muslims look to Mohammed? Mm -hmm. Yes, I do. The Buddha is a role model of what I myself can do. How so? He was an ordinary human being with hopes and fears and shempa, you know, ability to get hooked. And he freed himself from suffering, not from pain, but from suffering, and found his ability to communicate it so that it was very stirring to people around him and allowed other people to become free. And I believe I can also do that, and I believe everybody can also do that. So he's like the role model of someone who didn't give up on himself, didn't give up on the world, didn't give up on other people, and freed himself from suffering, this unnecessary suffering that Shantideva refers to. We shrink from suffering, but love its causes. We hurt ourselves, he says. So why should others be the object of our hatred? That's what he says. Not implying that we should hate ourselves, but implying that we could take responsibility for our side of it, you see. But do yes, you, I have great veneration for the Buddha. Do you, know, you pray to him? Like Christians pray to Jesus? No, no, I don't pray to him. Um, or even think of him necessarily as a role model. He was a person like myself that woke up the way I could and the way all sentient beings could. But more Buddha for me is that awakened mind itself, that totally open, unbiased, unprejudiced mind and heart and I resonate with that, and I come back again and again to that mind and heart as the motivating factor of my life. And I think of that as, you know, if you use the word Christ consciousness, you might call this Buddha consciousness or Buddha nature. So it's what he uncovered. It wasn't like he was reaching for something he didn't have. It was more like he had it all along, as if it was a mirror covered with dust, and he removed the dust and then the shining mirror was always there. So he uncovered that and that's what I resonate with, my capacity to do that and everyone's capacity to do that. So the Bodhisattva says, may all sentient beings be happy and free of suffering. And it means all. It doesn't mean except, you know, your list of people that you think should get theirs, you know. By happiness, what do you mean by happiness? Contentment, at home with yourself in your world, not separating yourself from others, not hardening your heart or your mind to others or to the world. That profound well-being which is not based on facts, so to speak, you know, like changing circumstances. It's not based on changing circumstances. How do you experience God? How do I experience God? You know that in Buddhism, they say, we do not believe in God or disbelieve in God. We keep it as an open question. So I don't use the word God much. I'm not at all even slightly offended by the word God. And I know it means a lot of different things to different people. But if I had to have a definition, it would be that open space of mind that allows for ultimate possibilities and doesn't narrow down into a security-based or fear-based view where my way has to 
have presidents. Do you describe yourself as a person of faith? Well, I thought about this topic because I knew it was the subject of faith and reason. And faith was not a term that I had ever used for myself. So I gave it some thought, you know, and then I thought, well, sure, I do have a lot of faith, but the main faith is that sentient beings have the capacity to awaken all beings, and that given the right causes and conditions, many people who are sort of neutral and can get caught by the sweep or a strong seduction towards aggression could equally be swayed towards peace and love and kindness because people have that capacity in them. Now, this isn't to say that I don't see injustice, but I think I'm more of the school of Martin Luther King, where you want beloved community, where you take the view that wanting everyone to be healed, not wanting to win your side and make the other side wrong. And okay, underlying this mm -hmm. would be that you want for everyone to de-escalate their aggression and not increase their aggression. And I equate that with happiness and peace in the world and so forth. On almost any day, what well, I would say on every day in New York, you can experience random acts of kindness. But after 9-11, kindness seemed to be everyone's daily behavior. I saw so much oh, kindness. Yeah. And oh, then, yeah. of course, it didn't take too long for it to disappear. Okay, so this is like a big view of what happens with individuals. What we saw in New York, and you see with people who are in those states, that it's a softness, a kindness. As people said during those days in New York, it's the only thing that makes sense. And then what happens? The habit comes back. Because basically the kindness comes out of not being able to escape from groundlessness. And when everyone is in the same situation, you're all groundless together, the only thing that makes sense is kindness. It's so interesting. You see, this almost proves, you know, if you're going to have a proof of faith in basic goodness, that sort of proves it. Then the person who believed in basic badness would say, no, the more fundamental thing is what reasserts itself. And I would say, no, what the Buddha taught was what reasserts itself is the classic texts call it adventitious. It means removable. It's temporary. Neurosis is temporary. Sanity is permanent. <laughs> I like that. But also, I've done dialoguing, interface dialoguing, when I was about 10 years ago. I did a lot of it. And I came out of it feeling, if your view is basic badness, you see it wherever you go. If your view is basic goodness, you see it wherever you go. And I said, I might be wrong. Maybe basic badness is the fundamental state, but basic goodness makes for a much happier world and for feeling more at home in the world and more friendship. So I came out feeling, you know, I'm open enough to maybe when I die, some big plaque comes up and says, you were wrong all your life. <laughs> Everything you believed in your whole life was wrong. I think I'm preparing for that moment, you know, for it not to be anything that I thought it was, and it would be okay. And do you see what I'm saying? Have you forgiven your husband? Oh, sure, yeah. Well, not only forgiven him, I tell him, you know, like, it's a little insulting to him, actually. I say, you know, you're leaving me with the best thing that ever happened to me. It's, you know, I'm not sure he's forgiven me, you know. <laughs> but but uh, for sure I've forgiven him because basically without that, it's like people who say, I lived such a superficial life until I found out I had a 
disease that wasn't going to get better. Do you see what I'm saying? Not everyone uses that to get happier. But for a lot of people, when you can't get rid of it, it sort of brings you to the bottom. You hit that kind of positive bottom where you surrender and then things begin to open up for you. Someone had given me a poem and it had a line in it which was softening what is rigid in your heart. Work on yourself, work on your own aggression. And this is where the meditation comes in. People who meditate, they do become much more in tune with being able to notice that they've been hooked and then also notice what they're saying to themselves at that time to escalate the whole thing. In other words, it does give you more clarity about what's going on with you. After over 30 years on this path of enlightenment that you began on when you took that vow to be a nun, do you feel you're close to a state of perfection? No. <laughs> no. I'm happy. I'm very happy. I feel satisfied with my life. If I died tomorrow, I'd feel I hadn't wasted my life. But my appetite is insatiable, and I feel I have a long way to go in terms of perfection. Who was the Zen master who told his students, all of you are perfect and you could use a little improvement? That was Suzuki Roshi, yeah. All of you are perfect and you could use a little improvement, <laughs> yeah. One of the things with the Bodhisattva warrior, they say that no matter how far you get in terms of being unhooked yourself or being happy yourself, always look back at who you used to be. Never forget to look back at the neurosis that you carried for so many years. Otherwise, you'll lose your contact with the suffering of other people. Mm. So for the Bodhisattva warrior, our kinship with each other is the crucial thing. So it isn't that really you want to avoid the pain of the world because that educates you about what other people are up against. But this suffering, remember earlier I tried to distinguish between pain and suffering and that suffering is what could lessen and there could be a cessation of suffering. So you're not trying to tell people that then there'll be no more bad things happening to good people, but that the good people will relate to those things in a way that doesn't escalate their suffering and therefore the suffering of those around them. Pema Chodron, thank you very much for being with me. It was my complete pleasure and thank you. I feel very honored to have had this chance to be with you. And I thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Visit BillMoyers.com to learn more about the Faith and Reason series. <laughs>